Our worship culminates uh, today in the Lord's Supper. Uh, It's a great privilege, and in preparation for our participation in the Lord's Supper, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 124. This is our scripture text for today, and we trust the Spirit of God will speak through the Word of God, Psalm 124. As you're turning there, I want to quote three well-known authors from the past and uh, just curt sentences. And listen carefully to what these authors say. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. I'm sure many of us are familiar with that one. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. It is not the remembered, but the forgotten past that enslaves us. It is not the remembered, but the forgotten past that enslaves us. The longer you look back, the farther you can look forward. The longer you look back, the farther you can look forward. Now, those authors, very different in their worldview, certainly very different in their approach and their acceptance of the Christian faith, but all in agreement as to the importance of history and being familiar with the past. Regrettably, a modern man has little sense of history, little appreciation of history, and little perception of history. On the eve of the new millennium, so back in 1999, a British newspaper conducted a survey. One question, who was the most influential person in the last millennium? And so as you look over the past thousand years, as you survey the past millennium, Who has been the most influential person? Do you know what the number one answer was? Princess Diana. No disrespect to Princess Diana, but that answer says a great deal about modern man, doesn't it? That as modern man reflects on the past thousand years and has asked this question of such magnitude, such significance, who has been the most influential human being the best that most people could come up with is Princess Diana. Regrettably, many of us as believers, we don't do much better when it comes to our knowledge of history. And I'm not even speaking of world history in general. I'm speaking of our own family history. How important it is for us as Christians to know our past, to know our family's past, to know our history as a church and to be familiar, well-schooled, well-steeped in biblical history. Psalm 124, as the Israelites annually made their way to Jerusalem, as they engaged in that pilgrimage, some of them it would take days. And as they walked and as they ascended to Jerusalem, they would sing this psalm, Psalm 124. And as they did, what were they doing? 
they were reflecting on their history. They were reminding themselves, they were reminding each other of where they had come from, of significant events in their past which had shaped them, and significant events in their past by which they must approach the present and the future. So there's a great example there for us, a great testimony there for us that as Christians, as the church of God, we must never lose sight of the past, where we have come from, but remind ourselves continuously, repeatedly, daily of those great momentous events in our history, biblical history, church history, because it is by looking at the past. And by weighing God's acts, divine acts in the past, that we are enabled to live in the present. We are equipped to face the future. And so with all that said, you found Psalm 124. Follow along as I read it for us publicly. We've already recited it collectively. Now follow along as I read it for us publicly. And as I read, try to follow the thought flow. And try to recognize that the psalmist is building in this psalm. There is a starting point and he is building, he is climbing a staircase, so to speak. And there is a a, a culmination. And as we read, listen also for the word Lord, God's divine name. Psalm 124, verse 1. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird. From the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now notice firstly, go all the way back to first verse, the first verse, and look just above it. There is a title. A song of ascents of David. And so we know who wrote this song. We know who penned these words, David. Notice, secondly, I asked you to listen for the divine name, Lord. We find it three times. Verse 1, if it had not been the Lord, he repeats the same phrase in verse 2. I'm counting these together as one. If it had not been the Lord. So there's the first instance. Instance number 2, verse 6, blessed be the Lord. Instance number three, verse eight, our help is in the name of the Lord. And so we have these three references, instances of David's use of the divine name. Remember, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it is Jehovah. You recall Exodus chapter three, when the Lord appeared in the burning bush to Moses And he revealed his divine name to Moses, I am. I am who I am. 
When you see in your English Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it is that divine name, God's personal name. And so David uses it three times. And I want to approach this psalm using those three references as pointers to three sections. And so the first section begins in verse 1 with the first reference, if it had not been the Lord. And it continues through to verse 5. And what David is doing exactly in these verses is very simple. He is reminding the people of the greatness of their danger as they look back. He is reminding them. He is forcing them to recall as they recite this psalm, as they sing this psalm together, their history, and in particular some occasion or occasions, multiple perhaps, when they found themselves in peril, threats all around them, the greatness of their danger. Now he begins this section, verse 1, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. He repeats exactly the same phrase in verse 2. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. And so he's encouraging the people to think hypothetically. The Lord is on their side. This is a truth. This is an undeniable reality. And they reveled in that great truth. They reveled in that glorious reality that God was on their side. And because God was on their side, He acted on their behalf. Because God was on their side, He delivered them from great danger. Years ago, one of my fondest childhood memories, indulge me, playing street hockey in front of the house. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. I just lost you right there. But playing street hockey in front of the house. And I remember with a dozen or so boys, we were all the same age. Every day after school, we would rush home. We would grab our hockey nets. I remember receiving a hockey net for my 10th birthday. It's about the only Christmas gift I remember receiving growing up. It was as good as gold. And we pulled out our hockey nets on the street, on the road, in front of our homes. And there we would play hockey every day after school. Sleet, rain, freezing rain, blizzard, it didn't matter. There we were. One of the boys had an older brother who was about four grades ahead of us. He actually went to a different school. And he stood head and shoulders above us all. And he would always arrive home late from school. He would always join the losing team. And that losing team would always end up winning. I mean, he could knock us all over. He ran twice as fast as the rest of us. And he could put that tennis ball, that hard frozen tennis ball in the net from anywhere on the street. Multiply that by a billion. If the Lord is on our side. If the Lord is on our side. It's not if. He's asking them to enter into a hypothetical situation. The Lord is on our side. And having the Lord on our side is to have infinite power on our side. It is to have the very creator of heaven and earth on our side. But what he's asking them to do, just for a moment, just for a moment, let's imagine he had not been on our side. Let's just try to enter into this equation. I know you're gasping just thinking about it, but let's just, let's just try to imagine this scenario that God had not been on our side. What would have happened? Oh, the greatness of their danger. And he brings this danger alive 
in verses 3 through 5 by giving us two word pictures. C.S. Lewis quipped decades ago, never read a book without pictures. Now, hang on, hang on, steady on. He did not mean diagrams, little drawings colored in. That's not what he meant. He meant never read a book in which the author does not employ word pictures. They are powerful. And here the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, gives us two powerful word pictures. We're in a hypothetical situation. If the Lord had not been on our side, oh, the greatness of our danger. The first word picture in verse 3, then they would have swallowed us up alive. It's possible he's envisioning a big fish swallowing a little fish. It's possible he's envisioning some ferocious wild animal swallowing whole a smaller animal. I'm inclined to think in the context of what's coming, he's thinking in terms of natural disasters. The earth would have swallowed us up alive. He's thinking, he's imagining an earthquake and the earth shakes, it trembles, it tremors and it splits and anything underneath it is... Swallowed up. If the Lord had not been on our side, that's what would have happened. It would have been like the earth opening up and swallowing us down whole when their anger was kindled against us. And then he gives a second word picture, verses 4 and 5. The first was that of the earthquake, swallowing us up. The second is that of the flood, sweeping us away. And he basically repeats this word picture three times. Verse 4, number 1, then the flood would have swept us away. Number 2, the torrent would have gone over us. Into verse 5, number 3, then over us would have gone the raging waters. It's a powerful word picture. The rain falls, torrential downpour, days on end. The river swells and the water spills over its bank. And that water, as it rushes headlong, sweeps away everything in its path. O Israel, if the Lord had not been on our side. O the greatness of the danger. Sudden, violent, overwhelming, uncontrollable, inescapable, powerful. And terrifying. We move into the second section. Second instance in which the psalmist uses the divine name. Verse 6. This section also includes verse 7. Blessed be the Lord. And now he moves from the greatness of their danger. That was the first section. To celebrating, forcing them to think back on the greatness of their deliverance. And what does he use? Word pictures. He uses two more. Verse 6. Blessed be the Lord. Here's word picture number 1. Who has not given us as prey to their teeth. What are you imagining? What are you thinking of? Some sort of fawn or lamb dangling from a lion's mouth. Quite right. I love watching those nature shows. And it's horrific. I do it with one hand over my eyes, but those fingers spread apart so I can still see what's going on. I can't look away. I'm just, I'm just mesmerized by it. As they catch that lioness or leopard or cheetah at full speed, tracking down that springbok or impala or something. 
And then they set their weight. The lioness sets its weight upon that, that impala or whatever it is, bringing it to the ground. And then what does, he, what does she do? She clamps down on the neck. And there she pants after the chase. And now she's waiting for what? The actual kill. And that impala is not going anywhere. That animal is hanging helplessly from the jaws, from the teeth of that lioness until that animal actually breathes its last. That is the word picture. Blessed be the Lord, O great deliverance, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. It doesn't stop there. A second word picture, the greatness of their deliverance. Verse 7, we have escaped like a bird from the snare, that is the trap of the fowlers. The snare is broken. A little more difficult for us to envision, visualize. Uh, The idea of fowlers using nets to, to trap birds, to capture them. Probably something we've never done, perhaps not even something we've ever seen. A more modern day, appropriate word picture perhaps would be, it's dove season, isn't it? Didn't dove season open this weekend? And so there's Ricky Braswell with the boys, Christian and Daniel, standing in a grove of trees, pecans with a camouflage on, and they're waiting, not moving. And that dove begins to fly toward them. 20 feet and closing directly for them. Three 12-gauge shotguns aimed at that dove. There is no hope. Ricky will miss, but the boys are sure to get it. It is a helpless, hopeless situation. That is the word picture. We have escaped. We have escaped a scenario which was inevitable. We have escaped a scenario in which we had no hope. We were like a bird is trapped in the fowler's snare, but the snare has been broken and we have escaped. And so the psalmist David, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he is forcing all Israel as they would sing this psalm annually to think back and to recall and to celebrate, yes, the greatness of the danger they were in. And equally true, the greatness of their deliverance. Now, I hope you're asking yourself, what is David talking about? I've I've been asking myself that for the past couple of weeks. What's he referring to? We don't know. Is he referring to a single event? Is he referring to multiple events? We don't know. It's possible he's referring to the time that Goliath taunted him and the armies of the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And Goliath, that enormous brute, emerged from the front line of the Philistines. And he laid down that challenge for the Israelites to send forth a champion. And the two of them would fight. And if Goliath defeated the Israelite champion, then the Israelites would become the slaves of the Philistines. If that Israelite happened to defeat Goliath, Goliath knew this was never going to happen. But if it were to happen, then the Philistines would become the slaves of the Israelites. David arrives on the scene. He hears the challenge. He takes up the challenge. He goes out to meet Goliath, and Goliath taunts him. Come to me. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David, with his little pouch of five stones in there and his sling, 
utters these words, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Friends, that is not some Bible story to be used at a football game as a pep rally. That is a wonderful revelation of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our deliverer, who defeats our greatest enemy. And here as David thinks back, perhaps on this event, he recalls that the situation was hopeless. The situation was helpless, humanly speaking, but the Lord was on their side. Or perhaps he's recalling the time when Saul hunted him and his men, those who were loyal to him. They were hiding out in the wilderness of Maon. And we read in 1 Samuel 23 that there was a hill, a small mountain in this wilderness. David and his men were on one side of this hill. Saul and his armies were on the other side of this hill. And Saul was closing in fast. He had David in his sights, his scope. And he was closing in for the kill. Suddenly a messenger arrived. The messenger arrived and told Saul that the Philistines have made a raid against Israel. And so Saul has to disengage from his pursuit of David. He has to go off to see, look into this report and what has happened. And David immediately calls that place, that hill, that mountain, the rock of escape. The rock of escape. That if the Lord had not intervened, this was orchestrated by the Lord. If the Lord had not acted, we would have been consumed. We would have been swallowed up. We would have been swept away, but the Lord was on our side. Or perhaps he's thinking of the time when Absalom, his own son, opposed him. Absalom, caught in the trap of bitterness, plots against his own father, flesh and blood. And he begins to rally support among the Israelites. And he decides that time is right for a coup. And he descends upon the city of Jerusalem. And David has but moments to rally those who are faithful to him, and they exit out the back door. Ahithophel, Absalom's counselor, says, Absalom, after him right away, do not delay. Do not give your father an opportunity to, 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 to rally his troops, to, 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 to buttress his support, and lodge a counterattack after him immediately. But God had planted another counselor, Hushai. And Hushai says, no, Absalom, you need to remember, your father now is like a wounded bear. A wounded bear robbed of his cubs. You don't want to go after him. And the men who are with him are valiant. No, here's what you should do. Stay put. And you rally your support. You build a bigger army. And then you go after him. Delay was disastrous. Hear what we read in 2 Samuel 17, 14. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom if the Lord had not been on our side. The earth is about to swallow them up. The water is about to sweep them away. They're like a lamb dangling from a lion's mouth. They're like a bird languishing in a fowler's snare. 
They are in great danger. But the Lord is on their side, and the Lord accomplishes a great deliverance. It brings us now to the third section, verse 8, the third instance in which we, David uses the divine name, Lord. Our help, he says, verse 8, is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The greatness of their danger, the greatness of their deliverance, and here we have the greatness of their God. This is the culmination. Here he reaches the apex of, of his psalm, of his song of celebration. He has forced them to look back. He has forced them to recall the greatness of the danger they were in historically. The greatness of God's intervention in delivering them. And now he brings them fast forward back up into the present. Here's what we are to celebrate moving forward. Here is how we are to live in the present. Here is how we are to engage those difficulties and distresses and obstacles and opposition we experience in life. We are to move forward in faith, remembering the past, the greatness of our danger, the greatness of of deliverance, and now the greatness of our God, that our help, here's our conclusion, and here's how we live, here's how we face the future, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That was his intent. Go all the way back to the first verse and the second verse. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, you may be wondering to yourself, verse 2, why does he repeat it? If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Look at the intervening phrase right at the end of verse 1. Let Israel now say. And So David sat down on some occasion and penned this. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, But he knows that decades, centuries from his life, from his point of reference, the Israelites were going to sing this. And so right at the outset, he wants them to grasp that they are to take what he is about to say and they are to bring it up to the present. Yes, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. And so he is making history immediately relevant. He is bringing the past into the present as they face the future. He is turning their heads almost physically and saying, never, ever, ever lose sight of what has gone before. Never lose sight of your history. Never lose sight of the past. Celebrate it in the present as you face the future. And face the future with this great truth, celebrating the greatness of our God as he articulates it in verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That should ring a bell. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Just flip back for a moment. Psalm 121, verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In Jeremiah 10, 12, we read the following. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and who stretched out the heavens by his understanding. He is our help. Our help is in the name of the Lord. That's the psalm. It hinges on those three references to the Lord. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, 
Blessed be the Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord. And we move from the past, great danger, great deliverance, to the present and the implications of what has happened in history. This is how we move forward. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, we want to go back and look at this psalm and understand this psalm through the lens, we're focusing here, of the cross. The lens of the cross. Do you think, I've wrestled with this the past week or so, do you think the Apostle Paul had this psalm in mind when he penned the following, if God is for us, or to use the words of the psalmist, if God is on our side, who can be against us. And now he forces us into the past. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And now he forces us to look ahead. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? View this psalm through the lens of the New Testament. And let's interpret this psalm through the lens of of the cross and the Lord Jesus Christ, the culmination and fulfillment of realization of God's eternal plans and purposes. Notice firstly what Paul says in Romans 8.31. He celebrates a past deliverance. He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. That's our history. That is our past. That is an event, an historical event in the past that we must never lose sight of. The earth was about to swallow us up. The water was about to sweep us away. We were like a lamb dangling from a lion's mouth. We were like a bird languishing in a fowler's snare. Powerful word pictures, interestingly enough. If you read the New Testament, you will find just about all of these used in reference to whom? Satan. The earth was about to swallow us up. That's out of Revelation 12. The same, the water was about to sweep us away. We were like a lamb dangling from a lion's mouth. We were like a bird languishing in a fowler's snare. The power of Satan is death. That's it. The power of Satan is death. The power of death is sin. You break the power of sin, you've broken the power of death. And if you've broken the power of death, you've broken Satan's power. What does Paul say in Romans 8? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, all. There is the breaking of the power of sin, the breaking of the power of death, and the breaking of the power of Satan. Spurgeon wrote, sin has brought more plagues upon this earth than all the earth's tyrants. What is happening in Syria right now is not our biggest problem. What is happening in Egypt is not our biggest problem. The geopolitical landscape moving forward in this country and around the world, although it occupies so much time and attention and has the news story in its grip, it is not the biggest story. And it is not our biggest problem. 
Sin has wreaked far more havoc than all the tyrants this world has ever seen. Spurgeon goes on. It has brought more pangs and more miseries upon men's bodies and souls than the craftiest inventions of the most cold-blooded tormentors. Sin is such a tyranny that none but those whom God delivers have been able to escape from it. The earth was about to swallow us up, Christians. The water was about to sweep us away. We were like that antelope or lamb just dangling, almost lifeless in the lioness's teeth, jaws. We were like that helpless bird languishing under the snare, under the fowler's trap. What do we read in 1 John 3 verse 8? The Son of God appeared for this purpose. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. Let me repeat it. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. Purpose to destroy the works of the devil. The power of the devil is death. The power of death is sin. And at Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus Christ breaks the power of sin. God gave up his son for us. By his death, Christ destroyed Satan's legal right to us. Satan no longer has any claim upon us. Because Christ has paid our debt. And Satan no longer has any accusation against us. Because Christ has removed our guilt. I'm speaking, of course, of Christians. If you aren't a Christian, that does not apply to you. If you're not a Christian, use those word pictures. You are still like that lamb dangling from the lion's mouth. You are still like that bird trapped in the fowler's snare. You are on the verge of being swept away by a torrential flood. You are on the verge of being swallowed up by by an earthquake that will shatter all earthquakes this world has ever known. Through faith and repentance, we're made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. And by being made one with the Lord Jesus Christ, His death is reckoned to us. The penalty of sin has been paid in Christ. We're made one with Him. Therefore, the efficacy of that payment is reckoned to us. The power of sin, the penalty of sin is removed. Therefore, the power of death that no longer has us in its grip. We know, we hope in a future glorious resurrection. And therefore, the works of the devil have been destroyed. Oh, we were in great danger. But what an equally great deliverance. Second thing Paul celebrates in Romans 8.31 is this, future assurance. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. There's history, there's the past. Past deliverance. Now future assurance. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. God has already given us the greatest thing. God has given up His beloved Son for us all. Argue from the greater to the lesser. If He has done that, if He has given us the greatest, if He has not withheld the greatest from us, then He will not withhold the lesser, which is what? Our future hope, glory. We have this absolute assurance as we look back 
rooted, fixed on a historical work, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there we have the greatest display of love known to humanity, God's love as poured out at Calvary's cross through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our hope as we look ahead. And arguing again from the greater to the lesser, we know that if God did not spare His own Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Oh, praise God, it is not my faith in Christ that saves me. Did you hear that, believer? I'm going to repeat it. It is not my faith in Christ that saves me. I'm going to repeat it. It is not my faith in Christ that saves me. It is not my hold on Christ that saves me. It is not my joy in Christ that saves me. It is not my hope in Christ that saves me. It is Christ's blood and merit alone that saves me. That cannot be changed. That cannot be altered. Our feelings up and down, here, there, all over the map. I'm not saved My faith is not what saves me. My hope is not what saves me. My love is not what saves me. My commitment is not what saves me. My devotion is not what saves me. I am saved by Christ's blood and merit. There I stand and I will not be moved. It is the grace of God. My love, says the hymn writer Horatius Bonner, Oh, my love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows. But peace with Him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. I change. He changes not. The Christ now can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie, the bond. Never lose sight of the past. Christian, daily live in the reality of what transpired at Calvary's cross, a great deliverance from great danger. And on the basis of that, we face the future with confidence, knowing that if he has given us the greatest, if he has given up his son for us, how will he not also give us all things? How will he not see it through to completion? You see, it's a hypothetical situation. Much like what the psalmist employs in Psalm 124. Inconceivable that God would purchase us, his people, his bride, with the son, with the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and not see it through to fruition. There's a third thing in that text. Not only is Paul celebrating past deliverance, not only is he celebrating future assurance, he is celebrating present confidence. That's the very first statement in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, if God is on my side, salvifically speaking, if God is on our side, who can be against us? Almighty power engaged for the salvation of his people. Our hope is in the Lord who made heaven and earth, 
who brought the old creation into being, into existence by His Word, who brought the new creation, creates faith by His Word. If this God is engaged for us, if this God is on our side, if this God is for us, who can be against us? Now, steady on, and let me just mention a couple things as we wrap it up. Related to present confidence. God has not promised that we won't experience distress. He has not promised that we won't experience danger. He has not promised that we won't experience difficulty. God has not promised that we won't experience great pain, great loss, and great sorrow. God has promised that these things, nothing, will separate us from His love. He has promised that nothing will alter His eternal plan and purpose for His people. And so we look to the past, the cross, history, great deliverance from great danger, and we apply it to the present, and we conclude, our help is in the name of the Lord. Our Father on high, we praise you for your word. We praise you for these passages that we have considered together this day. And now we look to you for blessing. We look to you to take what has been declared and affirmed by your spirit and to give us understanding and to create and stir and cultivate and nurture and mature faith in us. And we ask this for the furtherance of your kingdom among us. We ask this in accordance with your will. We ask this for your eternal glory. And we do so in the name of your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.